Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Whitten, and my co-host Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what separates the doers from the thinkers. Until she went to Sweden as part of a student exchange programme, Steph didn't really question the trajectory she was on. She was going with the flow. A spell in Sweden, a different culture with different people, and in particular a different educational system, woke Steph up to the idea that she had led a sheltered life and that different was at the very least interesting and at the very best significantly better than the way things were done back at home. The idea that there were other ways to do things stuck, so... When it came to joining the world of work, Steph started to question the model of get a job, go to the job, keep the job and climb the career ladder. She started to experiment with a whole heap of different remote working jobs. She got herself a job with a fully remote company and flew to live in Scotland and she's been working remotely ever since. Fully understanding that remote working was possible allowed Steph to question the other narratives in her life. If I can work remotely, what else is possible? Steph avoids pigeonholing herself. She's very clear that what she does for work today may not be what she does for work tomorrow. She avoids using a job title because she knows other people will use that to define her. Steph's nature is now one where she questions the status quo. But if you think that Steph is happy taking risks, you'd be wrong. Steph explores different ways of living life, but she does it carefully, cautiously. She does it in small steps, But importantly for Steph, she's constantly checking that a misstep won't result in her falling too far. If the life done differently that Steph seeks is on another metaphorical island, Steph does a heap of research before she sets off. And then she rows. Then she checks the boat is in perfect working order. Then she rows. Then she checks the boat. Then she rows and so on. Other people might get in and row like hell towards the other island, but Steph isn't interested in getting there quickly. She's just interested in getting there. Enjoy. Steph Smith, Life Done Differently for the Risk Averse. Hey. Hey, Steph. How's it going? Yeah, good. How are you? Good. So over there is Ray, but we call him Uncle Ray. Hey Ray, and I'm. You Neil. can just call me Ray if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's great to be talking to you. It's weird. It's a bit weird for me because I uh, I've followed your podcast for a while and your oh, blog and all sorts. So I kind of feel like I know you. It's always weird, <laughs> isn't it, when you meet somebody who you feel like you know, but they don't know you. So it's kind of yeah, strange. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hopefully I uh, hopefully I match <laughs> what you've heard. Well, we'll find out. We'll figure it out. Where in the world are you today, Steph? Uh, near San Diego. Oh, cool. And is that what was originally home for you? No, no, I'm Canadian. I'm from Toronto originally. I did know that actually. Okay. And so, because so maybe we should start here. So you, you, because one of the interesting things about you is you, you went nomadic for some time, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. I was probably four or five years on the road. Do you want to tell us about that? How did it come about? Like what, why did it start? Why did it stop? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, wait, are we, is this, yeah, like we're in. Oh, we're, okay. We're it. in. I wasn't yeah. sure. I saw the recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, I was working full-time in Toronto, which is where I was originally from post-college had been working for around a year there. And during that time, just kind of realized I didn't really want to 
climb the corporate ladder. I was working in business consulting and I also didn't really want to like live the rest of my life in Toronto. I felt like there was more out there. Um, I should say I also, the summer before that had traveled like crazy um, because I thought I was like selling my soul to the corporate ladder uh, after that. And then I had a friend send me something called remote year, which people might be familiar with now, but back then, this is in 2015, they had just started. They were on their first year. And if people aren't familiar with remote year, they've diversified now, but back then it was, 12 months in 12 countries and you travel around with a group of 75 people who were also nomadic. And that was my first encounter with even a concept like that. Like I didn't even know it was possible to go work abroad, let alone go travel and go to a bunch of different countries and just work anywhere with an internet connection. So I didn't end up doing remote year at the time, but that was like my first exposure. And after that, I was like, I can't unsee this. Like I have yeah. to... <laughs> go change my life and and do what I um what I've seen here or at least try it out. So I spent the next like 10 months or so trying out different remote jobs. I was on all the remote job boards, you know, sending in my resume. I did all types of odd jobs. I did social media for one company. I even like dabbled in customer service for another company. I was willing to do whatever it took to get a fully remote job. But I realized as I was doing those almost like tests that I didn't want to like completely derail my career. I still wanted to do a job that I was proud of. So long story short, I found one. And then from there forward, I was at a company that was fully remote. They were actually fully distributed, had no offices. So I could go and travel. And I think I got the job on like, or I started the job on a Monday. And by that Wednesday, I had a flight to Scotland. Um, and so after that, I just continued traveling for four or five years. And that led me kind of right up until the pandemic where I settled down a little bit, but um, yeah, around four or five years of traveling. And do you, I've got so many questions. Firstly, well, let's go back to the remote year. Was there a, a particular reason why the that didn't work out for you? Because there's something really interesting in their 75 people and doing it, you know, the structure that sits around it. Yeah, honestly, it was just a timing thing. So when I first heard of them, it was sometime in the fall of 2015. And then I, I actually applied. I even put down a down payment. It's funny, I'm now using that down payment like six years later um, for just like a random trip. I'm surprised they're letting me do that. But um, I was ready in theory for a trip. I was like, this sounds awesome. But then I realized I was like, I don't really, again, have a job that I was like proud of or that I was like willing to take that bet with um, where I would quit my existing job. And so I asked them to delay. So I think the first trip I was supposed to go on was maybe, you know, in like December. And then I asked, can I delay to the February trip? And then I asked, can I delay to the June trip? And by the time June came around, I actually had a job I could take, but I really wanted to just like start slow and like move to Scotland for a couple months and like get used to the job. And so I just asked them, can I delay this indefinitely? Like I want to do this trip, but can I delay it? And then it kind of just never happened. Like I, I never really had a time where I was like, I want to spend 12 months on the road um, with a group. And so um, now they, like I said, they've opened up like week long retreats or month long trips and also four month trips. So um, not affiliated with them, of course. Um, but that's why I've chosen to like now do it. But um, yeah, it is, it is a pretty cool sounding adventure to, to spend 12 months with people. The timing just didn't work out for me. It sounds like when you said I couldn't unsee it, it sounds like uh, you started to see a new world, a new life. 
and then yeah. was starting to work towards and then obviously got there um what what was it you think you were looking for or or what was it that you that that inspired your interested you to to take that step yeah i think it was just a very simple realization that there is a life that you can design and and that most of the lives that people end up living are pretty prescribed to them um like even if you think about the first 20 years of your life i'm not necessarily against this but you are taught to go to school go through a specific set of you know school lectures or or lessons then you are prescribed to go to university you're prescribed to do university in a set of topics and then after that you're basically told to go and work you know a job in something that you chose when you were 18 um going to university and then you're basically on that track forever like it's kind of wild to actually think like when i had done that four month journey basically around the world because i thought that was like my last shot mm. at doing that that's pretty crazy when you think about it that at at that age, I was 21, um, that I thought that was my last chance to go and do the things that I wanted to do. And a lot of people feel that way. And I think more people are recognizing that it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, the one, you know, positive side of the pandemic is I think that a lot of people are like challenging narratives and realizing that the past they were on don't necessarily need to be true. But yeah, that was, that was really what I meant, which is when I saw that these people were doing something that was totally outside of my reality of what I thought was possible. It not only made me think, Oh, I want to go do that, but also like, what else can I mm. create or what else can I design in my own life that I've always wanted, but just thought wasn't possible. Like, how can I stretch my mind to now, be more malleable and realize that actually most things in life you can with enough work. Like in this case, I worked 10 months to find the right job to enable that lifestyle. Um, you can do a lot more than what, again, life is kind of like narrated and, for and, you. And what did the people that were around you at the time when you started floating this idea, what were they saying to you? Were they saying you're crazy? Were they saying go for it? Uh, probably a mixture of both, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so for the time where I was looking for other remote jobs, no one, I wasn't really sharing that with many people because it was just me like working on the side. I didn't know if it would work out. I didn't know if I would, would eventually find something that would allow me to do something like remote year at the time. But when I did eventually quit, um, there was a lot of people that thought <laughs> that, that whatever job I was taking was probably a scam or something like that. I know my parents, because even though I was only there for around a year, the job that I had taken in Toronto and consulting was going really well. And even my boss at the time tried to convince me to stay and, you know, offered me more money, a more flexible job, et cetera. I ended up of course saying no, but I remember my mom specifically was like shocked by that because she worked at IBM for two decades and I don't think was treated terribly, but also not particularly well. And she was just like, the fact that you have a boss that's like willing to retain you, that wants to like, sh you know, kind of usher you through this career. She's like, this is so important. Like, don't give this up kind of thing, especially for something that sounded very foreign to her. Um, uh, and uh, obviously I didn't listen. But And, and what was the, what's the difference between you, you and your mom? I mean, what is it that she's valuing that you're not? As much. Yeah, I mean, I think she she just more so values stability. Um, but I would also say that for people that know me well, um, I do sometimes make decisions that others don't like deciding to go nomadic. 
but I also would say I'm not very risk-taking. I think if I was a large or a big risk taker, I would have quit the second I saw a remote year. What I did and what I've done throughout my career is like take risks, but also like hedge those risks and work up to those risks. So in the case of, of this example, I worked, as I said, to for 10 months to find, I worked, I think at one point I was working four jobs because I just wanted to test out as many as I could and also find a company that I felt comfortable making that leap with. So when I made the leap, it really, I mean, to others on the outside, it may have seemed like a leap, but for me, it really wasn't because I had a job that paid me just as well. I had a job at a company that I researched and realized like was respected and doing well financially. And the only difference in that case was that now I, it was a fully remote job. So I think my mom does definitely gear herself more towards stability, but then even you, then so I would you, say I've picked that up from her, but just maybe a little less than her. So the difference between the two of you really was your knowledge. You, you knew about this world, you'd experienced it yourself. So actually for you, she has a need for stability, but so do you. It's just that the knowledge was different. So she didn't understand how it was going to be stable. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people, it's, it's, it is that knowledge gap where they have literally been trained their whole life to believe that life works a certain way. And then it's really hard to untrain that. Like even when I started working remotely and other people would message me and be like, how are you like on the road? Like, how are you traveling while you're working? Do you have a job? And when I would tell them, they would be surprised, but also I would get a lot of pushback from people being like, I can't do that. Or like, you know, this works for you, but not for other people in their respective jobs or, you know, remote work sounds cool, but there's no way I could be productive. And just like almost inventing reasons why something couldn't work that were really not based on much because a lot of those people now that I see throughout the pandemic are doing just fine in terms mm. of working remotely. So it's really interesting how we have a conditioning that happens for two decades and it's really hard to like uncondition that unsurprisingly because you're working with two decades during like some of the most, you know, important shaping parts of your life. Um, so yeah, I, I do think there is a knowledge gap that I also think there's like a kind of almost like a habitual gap where people are on a certain trajectory and it's like, it, it takes like momentum to reverse or inertia to reverse that. How conscious do you think you were, Steph, of that conditioning that you talk about in the first two decades? I think I I am way more conscious of it now. I think I had enough of like a questioning or I questioned it enough to like then pursue other things and look outside of that. But only years later, I look back and I'm like, wow, I never even questioned whether I should go to college. Like I just did it. Like that was like a, a given. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing for people to go to college, but the fact that that was never even a question for me to even consider what would life look like if I didn't do this. And same goes for when I was in fourth year, when we started looking for jobs. Um, I remember in the first couple of months, like everyone in my class was just at the job fairs, like sending in their resumes and they were all to the same companies. And the fact that I also just like had zero questioning around that is surprising now that I look back. And it's funny because I, I bet if some people are listening to this, they can probably picture or point out points in their past. And now maybe like at this exact moment, they're realizing like, oh my God, like true. I never questioned that. I just like have been on this trajectory that so someone 
else defined. So do, do you remember that first moment when you started to sort of, sort of think, hang on, there is another way or there's got to be another way? Yeah. I, so the remote year thing was one, but I would say one of those happened around a year or two earlier, which is I in third year, I did go on exchange and I don't even remember where I heard about it, but um, in my particular degree, I was, I did chemical engineering. It was really rare for people to go on exchange. They didn't even advertise it. And I think partially because it was really hard to find other universities abroad that matched up the curriculum um, exactly or, or close enough that you wouldn't have to take an extra year. So I actually had to spend like several weeks trying to accommodate that and find the right university with the right courses to enable that. That's an example of where they weren't promoting it. I don't know how I heard about it. I think I even applied late and emailed the woman and was like, hey, is there any chance I can still do this? But basically like somehow ended up on exchange was probably one of the best years of my life. I'm sure where, most where did, where did you go? say this. I went to Sweden in the end. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I just, I ended up coming back and I, I, saw a lot of my classmates um, and again, nothing wrong with this, but they were the exact same as like kind of where I had left things. And I felt like I had changed so much. Like going You'd grown a lot. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and then I, it was kind of like a parallel of what we're talking about here, where I saw this trajectory that people are on and all these people who had continued along this trajectory. And I had taken, you know, a detour and coming back and looking at that, I was like, huh, like, Imagine if I had never done that detour. I'd almost like seen the upside of of taking the unbeaten path. And so that was like my first kind of look into that. And then uh, I think uh, later on, I started making bigger bets because I was like, oh, remember that time where like I made that bet and it worked out. And also remember how things would have gone if you like stayed on that path. And just like reminding myself of that, I think has been helpful. And and what was it about going to Sweden? What, what, what would... What was it that um, helped you grow? I mean, I don't think any of this is super surprising. I think when you're young and you get to live in another country, we also traveled to probably like 20 plus other countries. I got to meet and, and you know, live with people all around the world, at least at that university we were living in halls. So um, it was really fun, obviously, as well. We also got to, um, I think, learn a completely different way of education. So in, I'm from Canada, uh, our education system is very similar to America, um, where you've got either like a GPA system or a grade point um, or like a percentage system. And in Sweden, it was totally different. Even for chemical engineering, a lot of the classes were either pass fail, or if they weren't pass fail, they were three, four, five or fail. Um, And in addition to the grading being completely different, you could redo exams as many times as you wanted. You could like submit assignments until you pass. So so you could submit one and it fails and then you submit it again and it fails and then eventually it passes. And this may sound really crazy to someone from a North American education system, but when you're there, you understand it because they actually are just more focused on you learning the material Mm. um, and truly understanding it instead of what happens in I'd say Canada, which is more like, let me ace this exam. So let me cram like crazy before the exam. And then, you know, get get a 99% so, and then forget everything. So so what you were waking up to was the idea that different could also work and in fact different can work better. Yeah, I think it's it's a lesson I keep learning from, you know, having traveled now to 50 plus countries is that 
again, there's a lot of narratives that you don't even realize are narratives of the way that you're brought up. And when you're brought up in the same place as I was for two decades, then you don't even realize the things that you don't know, right? Like that's like a common saying, but you I didn't know what you I think didn't know. You think they're set in stone. They're not, it isn't even a question mark over that. That's just the way it's always done. Exactly. And like you yeah. said, not only this is the way it's done, but it's so out of the ballpark to consider like there is a better way. And so it's just kind of crazy because again, I'm in a much different headspace now having taken some of these chances and travel a lot, but um, thinking back to like the way my mind worked then, I didn't know it was very sheltered. I didn't know that um, it was like almost like um, it, it had just absorbed all of the things that I had been taught. And it's so funny because back then, if you asked me, I probably would have said I'm an independent thinker. Everyone thinks they're an independent thinker. Um, I was not an independent thinker. And I think most people aren't. And so now I would say, you know, maybe I'm mistaken again, I would say I'm at least more of an independent thinker because I have been exposed to many more things. And now I can decide like, oh, which one do I think truly is best? But it's kind of funny because a lot of people who say they're independent thinkers have been exposed to only one way of thinking. So how can mm. you, be, the only way you can be an independent thinker is if you're choosing from a subset of ideas and deciding which one you think is best. But if you've only been exposed to one, you're not an independent thinker. Yeah. You're just someone who's adopted, you know, a way of thinking. And again, I'm not hating on people who've done that because it is the majority of folks. Um, but I think I've benefited now from understanding that there is like many ways of thinking out there and many countries can teach you that by just like, you know, you just plop yourself there for a couple of days. You'll see like, oh, wow, I didn't know, like th their streets are way different or the way that they interact with other people when they're buying something is way different. And, and you just learn that, yes, like the way that you were taught is not always the best way. There's a couple of things that would be good to come back to. One being that uh, just that exposure to a very different method of education and a method of um, grading and how I wonder if that was uh, a time when consciously or unconsciously you start to question some of those more strongly held beliefs in as much as that you know like you say uh you come from an education system where it's optimized to get the best grade possible and it's about the grade as opposed to the quality of learning and again do you do you do you as you think back now and you put yourself back into those shoes do, do you were you mindful of that at the time do you think when I was in Canada, you mean like when no, I was. So when you, when you came across to Sweden and you started to look at, so it's a very different education system being in a very different way. Do you think you were minded to then not only recognize the difference, but also then start to question some of the stronger beliefs that you might have otherwise held? Oh yeah, definitely. I think it was impossible not to be almost like jarred by that education system. Like when you're used to writing exams and having your one shot be your only shot. And also that like you're aiming for like, again, that hundred percent, not a pass fail. Um, when you get to the other form of education, it's like, it sounds crazy at first. Like it's yeah. it very much is like, this is like kind of cuckoo for them to like form their higher education around this, these concepts. Um, and then over time you do realize that I don't necessarily think like Sweden's structure is better but it is different and you start to notice like what does this allow for and and in the case of Sweden it's like consider that the way the education system works in somewhere like Canada you can only really teach something that can be discreetly graded 
right? So you can only really teach something that can have a 70% versus a 90%. Uh, when it's pass fail, you have a lot more flexibility to teach things that aren't so quantitative, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that can be a beautiful thing. Um, I also think a, a great example of this is when I learned uh, French in school in Canada, I learned it for like six years. And because it's so focused on grading, even at early ages, I I can't speak French at all now, mm-hmm. you know, even though I took it for six years, because it was so focused on grammar and punctuation and something that can, you know, be written down and then again, graded. It's so crazy, in- isn't it? It's so crazy. I mean, I, I was listening to an Alan Watts podcast uh, uh, earlier, actually, and he talks specifically about this and he talks specifically about French <laughs> you know yeah, this, this mean, is from is the late from Canada? this, this <laughs> is the late 50s this is the late 50s in the late 1950s he's talking about this and he's just saying how crazy it is that you're studying for a French degree <laughs> rather than learning to speak French yeah well I was I asked if he's from Canada because I, everyone in Canada is forced to learn this for you know, at least six years and some people continue forward. And I would say that no one that I've met who did the minimum, the six years, um, actually can speak any meaningful amount of French, which is crazy because you're spending so long doing it. And a counter to that is when I was in Sweden, I took a course for around, I'd say like two months, might've even been one month. Um, And that class was pass fail so it wasn't focused on let me get the perfect grade and it was much more speaking focused and by the end our exam was just four of you sit down we're going to give you a topic um and you can practice there's i think there was like three topics that they tell you beforehand and on the day of the test we give you one of them and you guys just have to talk in a conversation for 10 minutes um which i could never do in french and i could do it in swedish and we passed and um the point is that that could never have been done in the Canadian education system because how would you grade that? How would you grade someone having a conversation with three other people? So I think that was eye-opening for me to realize that yes, like there isn't anything inherently right or wrong about either system, but you can now see like, again, what it allows when you change the system. And it may seem kind of crazy at first, but it does introduce different dynamics. And I think it also, for example, like another byproduct of that system was that because students could retake exams, because students also weren't paying extravagant amounts for their schooling, you also saw them pivot their careers much more throughout that period versus most people who go into the Canadian or American education systems, whatever they start out with at their degree is what they end, which is kind of crazy again, because when you choose your degree, you're like 17 or 18, and you have no idea what you truly want to do. And so I think that's another kind of positive byproduct of a more flexible, less results driven system where I saw tons of people who like started out in literature and realized like, I don't actually want to do literature. And then they went to, you know, biology and then they went to computer science. So that I think was also another byproduct of a very different system. Can I, can I just take that? I mean, I think it's really interesting that this was your first sort of taste of different and, you know, we're, we're all, you know, Neil and I were always interested in how to live a life done differently. Um, and we always talk about it in terms of the best way to sort of fast track those experiences, different people, different places, and experimenting with your personality. And, and I'm interested in when you went there, 
did you feel you had license to experiment with your personality? Yeah. Yeah. I think I did. I mean, I, I don't know if I, it was a super like conscious thing where I was like, I'm going to Sweden and I'm going to test out a new personality, but I do think the same idea of like growing up and, and having certain narratives for two decades, you also do the same thing with your personality where by the time you're 20 years old, you feel like however people regard you is what you are. And that doesn't need to be true. And I do think that was like a nice introduction to that, where when I went and met completely new people, I was like, actually, like no one knows how I typically dress or no one knows like if I'm the quiet one or if I'm the loud one. And so I felt like I did have more license to just like be myself um, and almost like experiment with that um, more than I think this happens to a lot of people, especially if they grew up in one place and remain in that place with the same friends and the same surroundings, that there is an expectation from the outside that, oh, like Steph is X and therefore yeah. they feel the need to continue doing that thing. And I think I'm glad you pointed this out because I think since then that was like my first introduction to like, oh, actually I can be however I want to be. And now I would say I've like more so honed in on how I feel I truly am versus, you know, five, 10 years ago, I think I was the person who was saying like, oh, I don't like, that's not me. Right. Like I, I couldn't do that, even though I wanted to wear the thing or I wanted to say the thing, or I wanted to do the thing. So yeah, I think, I think you're right that that new environment allowed for some of that like expansion. And I'm glad it has, because now I look back and again, I, I look at the person I was many years ago and I'm like, that person was really fixed in like what they thought they could be partially because of what other people expected mm. me to be. Um, I'm going to back up a bit, Steph, because th th we've just got a really good backdrop of um, how you think about your life and how, how you've started to, that you used a word earlier of malleable. And I think that's a good framing of you, you, you've broken free in some regard of, of kind of some fixed constraints and started to become more malleable. Um, what when you meet people today how do you describe yourself so and I, I this is a really loaded question to be clear and I'll, I'll explain why afterwards but so if, if you just meet someone new and they go hey uh what do you do how do you answer that question well I never know how to answer that question because I'm always um I feel like I should answer in terms of like I am a marketer or I am a like specific job title but because I'm doing so many things these days like sometimes I just divert to like, I would work on the internet <laughs> or something like that. Um, but if it, if it is a conversation where people are like, hi, I, you know, I do whatever I'll say sometimes like I'm, you know, I work in marketing, um, or I do marketing for a tech company, but even I don't, I, I am not even sure if your question was more broad where like, I think a lot of people do, introduce themselves in terms of their job titles, which is another conversation where, you know, a lot of people almost like that is their identity. Um, and that's another reason why sometimes in those introductions, I struggle because I, I think that's like one sliver of like what I do or like how I identify. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's what you were kind of yeah, like getting uh, you at. Are, you passed the test. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what, one of the things that's really interesting about you, um, is that a lot of a lot of the guests that we have on this podcast because the nature of what we're exploring they tend to be um they tend to not have what you would class as kind of a, a job a traditional job 
very few people and i think that's as i say just the nature of the kind of people that we that we have these conversations with whereas um from what i understand of you and your you've you've had quite a what would be considered a kind of normal career i mean it's there's lots of growth and there's lots of success in the career but um but there is a clear career and i think a lot of other people that that were in your position would jump immediately to uh, a quite a clinical answer and i guess today from what from what i understand it would be cmo of hubspot not cmo but a director of marketing yeah, yeah so, so um so i mean but, but but you see what i'm saying most people would kind of jump immediately there and i noticed in every part of your response you, you, you even in amongst everything else you didn't mention that and um and that's that's supportive of of what i understand of you and and kind of where you are with things because you clearly have lots of other things going on and also you're trying not necessarily to um pigeonhole yourself as as one thing yeah i think this relates to what we just spoke about which is if i start to paint myself as like director of marketing at hubspot which i am right like I, that that is my title then people come to expect that of me and i think that I've learned that I operate better when I don't have these expectations from other people of like, oh, stuff does X, right? So I am in marketing, but I also taught myself to code a couple of years ago. I also, you know, like have other hobbies on the side that are completely unrelated to work and making money. I have a business, right? So I think, you know, I could be one of those people who on their LinkedIn, you see like speaker, coach, writer, mm. like whatever, but I don't feel the need to even like put those labels on. I, that's why I sometimes just go for, I work on the internet. Um, I also think that, you know, I've heard people say that the more you're trying to prove yourself through these titles, like I could say like, I'm a director of marketing. To me, it's more impressive just to see like what people do online um, or what people do out in the open. And I think that I've been able to prove myself in those ways. And so I don't need to append like, you know, director to my title, or I don't need to like say I'm an entrepreneur or a founder. Um, and so I, I guess what I'm getting at is I don't like to pigeonhole myself in th those ways. And, um, I think that probably if you were to talk to me in five, 10 years, I'll probably be none of those things and like five new things. So that's why I don't, um, you know, I don't try to communicate myself as a certain label because I think it can be limiting for myself, but also like how other people interpret me. I will say that other people naturally will add labels to you. Like people will be like, oh, Steph's the content girl mm. or Steph's like, you know, the girl from trends or whatever. And so you can't avoid that. You can't avoid someone else adopting names for yourself. And so I think I have enough of that from the outside. So I, I try not to like label myself as much um, on my own. How, how do you think about um, all of the side projects, all of the initiatives, all of the other things that you put your time and attention to? How do you think about that? What's the what's the what's driving you? What's driving the effort and the and, and the intention? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I even have a great answer here because there is like a little bit of oh, it's great to you know make additional money on the side. It's great to have like some sort of following, but all of my side projects were things that I just like genuinely wanted to create. Um, so there was like an inherent need to create them where I saw like a gap and I was like, I don't see anyone's made this. I want to be the one who like, you know, can stamp my name on this creation. And so I think that also relates to what, like what you said earlier, which is the fact that I have this more traditional career path on one side. And then because I have that stability and, um, you know, cash flow 
from my job, everything I do on the side is not necessarily geared to like, how much money is this going to make? Or how many followers am I going to get from this? It's literally like, what do I want to wake up and create today? Um, and I think that, I don't know, I think that's like an inherent human need to like be creative and like, you know, today it's on the computer, but in the past it was like build something with your hands and like have like a sense of accomplishment in, in what you're doing. And so it's not that I so much don't get that from my job, but it's more limited, right? Like everything I do in my like nine to five, I have to, I have to do what, you know, is best for the business in my side projects. I can, again, purely follow what I find interesting and satisfying. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. does. (laughs) I'm just going to try and extend it just one more layer. And then it sounds like Ray's got something. Um, let's take one, one of the examples. So you, you wrote a book and, um, but you wrote the book in 50 days and it was a proper book as in, you know, 60,000 words or whatever it was. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a very successful book. So obviously people wanted it, needed it, and they wanted to read it. So it did all of the things that a book should do, but you did it in 50 days and you had lots of other stuff going on at the same time. That's the bit that I'm particularly interested in and the bit that maybe we could explore more. What, what is it that, so I can understand that you saw the opportunity for the book. You wanted to put your name to that book and you wanted to do it and it's a creative outlet, but there's also this added layer of doing it within 50 days. What, where does that come from? And where, what, what's, what's the drive that's sitting behind that? Yeah. So that, that decision to do it in a short period of time was more of a means to an end as in, I, I think over the last five, six, seven years, however long I've been working remotely, um, I've learned a lot about how I work best. And in that particular case, it was the realization that if I didn't complete it in a short period of time, I never would complete it. And I think a lot of people have this with their, their side projects as well, because I don't have pure liberty to use my time. I do have a full-time job. I have other responsibilities. I knew that if I didn't write this thing in a very constrained period of time, then it would have been sitting on my computer half finished or quarter finished or three quarters finished forever, like literally ever. And I've learned that about myself because I've done that. I have created projects that I've gone partway through and never completed them. And so that one was just like an acknowledgement about how I know I work. And I also would say that something I learned several years ago, because I've been working on side projects for several years, is that I personally work best in almost like some people say seasons or epochs or eras. I can't always be creating. I think I would, you know, burn out if I constantly was working my full-time job and then like every single day hacking away at my side projects. Um, But as most people do, like I have spurts of like inspiration or like drive to go and complete something. And so this was the case where I had one and I went and I wrote this book in 50 days. And I, again, I knew I had to finish it because I knew that drive would dwindle down. Like, it's not like it, it's just like ever present flame that, that I can harness. And so I think if, if people are going to take anything away from that, it's not that they have to operate how I did and write a book in 50 days, but people do operate in very, very clear, concrete ways. If you pay attention to, you know, your, as, as woo woo as it sounds, your energy levels, right? Like mm. when you have a drive to do something. And so that was the case in this particular book. And, and did you know, day one, the first day you started writing, did you know day one was going to come? Did you you have it in the diary? You were going to start then or did you just feel it and start? No, I just felt it. And, and in this case, it was because I had actually written. So great example of something that got partway through. I'd written 
an equivalent blog article, but an outline for it. Because around a year before that, I had a similar drive where I was like, oh, I have something to say. Like my blog has grown unlike other blogs. And I've been in this like newsletter business for a while. Like, let me write about this. And I had created the outline. The outline itself was like 3000 words. And then you know, I didn't work on it for a while and that drive disappeared and it disappeared for a year until I had stumbled upon that outline again. And then, you know, something about like where I was in that particular time, I had learned a lot more. I was like, oh, I could actually create this and I could do a really good job. And I think also context probably leading up to that, I feel like I had encountered a lot of bad material on this particular topic of like doing content well. And so I think that added to my drive. And when I saw the outline, I was like, oh, I could actually, like, I could do something really cool with this. So, so it was really about a drive. You had something to say. You felt you had something to say, something to yes. contribute. And yeah. and, with- and what, I'm, what I'm interested in is day one, you started writing. Day two, did you write? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I set my deadline. So when I originally rediscovered this outline, I tweeted about it because another mistake I've made throughout, you know, creating many projects is in the particular case of a book where I wanted to charge for it. Um, in the past, I'd created so many things and like never asked if people actually wanted it or whether people would pay for it. And so in this case, I threw up a pre-sale page immediately, or actually even before that I tweeted about it. I was like, Hey, I found this outline. I think I like posted screenshots of the outline or at least like what the chapters were. And I was like, would people pay $10 for this? And a bunch of people said yes. And luckily a bunch of other people also were like, just throw up a pre-sale page. So I did that, got a bunch of validation. And in order to throw up the pre-sale page, I had to like select a deadline. So that's when I selected like, and did you I'm going to publish this. And did you write every day? Uh, not every day, but, but almost every day. Okay. So period. you really did you know, like keep that momentum going. Yeah. Well, in that case I had to, right. So that's another yeah. thing about like recognizing how I work. I am motivated by like deadlines or like concrete um, lines in the sand. Some people aren't, but that is something that I need. If I don't have those concrete lines in the sand, then I will procrastinate or I will just like leave something. And so in that case, yes, I, I wrote pretty much throughout most of that period. Um, and then, yeah. And then published it. And, and how does, sorry, Neil, this is a question from just from earlier that I was sort of thinking about. Was that how, how did HubSpot um, view you and your um, extracurricular activities? Because yeah, surely so I, it's, good, it's good for them, I, 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 I guess. Yeah, um, HubSpot, I should say, like even prior to myself and other people um, coming from the hustle who are very side project driven, has supported their employees with, their work on side projects and that's always been a a clear um i think differentiator for them i think some companies obviously don't take that same stance and then in terms of my projects and um i think i'd also say maybe some other folks again from the hustle who are very like heavily public about their side projects as well um i think they've been incredible about it and i think that they are a company among a few other companies that are realizing that this is a positive thing. I Mm -hmm. think for a long time, side projects or diverted attention has been viewed as a negative thing. Um, But of course, as long as the person is doing a good job, which I would assume, you know, I am based on my trajectory within the hustle and HubSpot, then they realize this is an amazing thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is not only driving more attention towards the company, but it's also showing that the company is supportive in that way, right? And if you think about like what 
creative people want is that they need creative outlets. And so I think it's always kind of funny how certain companies will, they will say one thing, but then the, the way they structure their environment is the complete opposite. So for example, companies will be like, we need top talent. We need people to think outside of the box. Meanwhile, for years, they would refuse to hire remotely mm. of people who literally have thought outside of the, you know, two decade narrative that we were talking about earlier, those people, they had restricted from, you know, hiring uh, a similar thing is in the case of, you know, companies saying like, we need really creative people at the same time, they restrict those people from working on side projects. And so it's like, those things don't match up. And so of course, again, the person needs to be doing a good job in their core role, but if companies truly do want to find quote unquote top talent, top talent is ambitious. Top talent is creative. Top talent is always pursuing things both inside of their job and outside. And so if companies really do want to access that top talent, then I think they would benefit from more of a HubSpot model where they've recognized that and they've not only okayed it, like it's not just like, you know, passively, um, okayed, but it's actually encouraged, right? And and they support us when we are pursuing these side projects. So yeah, they've been really great about it. And it's, it's all, I, I look at it, it's like parenting styles, right? You know, there are, yeah. you know, if you're a, the sort of parent or parents that, that, you know, keep control of people, then you, you, your kids, then you don't let them go out when they want to go out and, and all of that. You don't let them fall over. You don't let them you know, do all these things that maybe are just experiences. Uh, and then you've got other parents who, uh, you know, want their kids to be independent. Yeah, but it's it's not only that, because the difference with parenting is you have one child or, you know, multiple ch- children, but you have the child that you you currently have and will always have. The, the reason this is even more important for recruiting or companies is because the downside is limited as in if you really screw up parenting and you let your kid like do absolutely anything and they ended up becoming a drug addict and killing themselves like that is irreversible um when you have a company and the people at that company have freedom and someone is shown to disrespect that freedom that's been given to them you can fire them and that's a very yeah, normal yeah. thing and 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 a there very- are lots of parents out there who want to fire their kids at various moments <laughs> i know that <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the downside is limited. Is speaking point, as right? a parent. With, uh, with the company, right? Um, and and that's why I think with parenting, of course, I agree with you. There's many parenting styles. My parents, perhaps unsurprisingly, were super chill and not very overbearing. But um, I can see why some parents are a little more constrained in that way, where they, they're more careful because the downside is more um, vast than I would say at a company where you can fire someone if they are shown to kind of abuse that freedom. I mean, the big, the, the word that comes to mind is just trust to me. You know, it, it's, you know, your, your, your employer trusts you. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of, again, in the case of a company where you can fire someone, it's kind of silly to not extend that trust mm. because you're not even allowing that information to rise to the surface. As in, if you're constantly overbearing and constantly dictating what people will do, you have no idea if they would thrive more and be more productive in that more flexible environment. You're never giving them the chance to learn that. You're never giving yourself the chance to learn that. And again, the downside is so limited because I will say candidly throughout my career working at quite flexible companies, I have seen people take advantage of that. But again, the downside is just okay, this happens for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then you fire that person. And anyone who takes advantage of those 
those protocols or um, that flexibility that's offered often it was never a good employee in the first place. Like that person probably should have been fired eventually in any case. And so from my experience, giving that flexibility allows you to learn that information about this, that particular person. And in most cases, it's gone very, very well. And in the few cases where it hasn't, you can just remove them and, you know, move forward as a company. Just coming back to, uh, so that what I think Ray was, was looking for when we were talking about the um, every day, 50 days and the, the rigor. So firstly, I just wanted to get, give a nod to the idea of cr- creative constraints because um, uh, I think that's an important subject and it's, and just to, to frame it as that, that if you, especially in creative endeavor, uh, no constraints is for, for lots of individuals is just messiness. And, and I think yes. maybe that's what you were saying that by putting some constraints in place, it, it forces output as opposed to, um, to procrastination. Um, but, but the other point around, um, so when Ray was saying, well, what about day two? What about day three? And I, I think your answer was, yeah, yeah. You know, I showed up, I got the work done in 50 days and got it, got it done. And I was also thinking, as you were talking about that, uh, the, when you launched the podcast, you did 30 in 30 days. And, uh, and again, we know, because we do it, how much work there is involved in that. And it's, 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 it's a lot to take on. It really is. Um, but it, again, I, I'm pretty sure you, you, you did that, you completed it. Um, and I just want to link that up to, I heard um, Sam Parr describe you as an animal, but he oh, described it yeah. in, do you, know, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 I remember this. But, but he described, it was a really, it was a real compliment and he was describing it in a really positive way. And I think the context was they were discussing the idea of like a 10X engineer. And there's this idea that uh, some, some employees, some individuals um, are outperforming their coworkers by by 10 times and um and i think when when they were discussing that sam said yeah steph was steph was our 10x employee at the, at the hustle and i think from what i know of you and the stuff we're talking about what what he's referring to is your ability to stay the course get it done you talked earlier about energy and and, and the point when it gets a bit woo woo but could you just take a moment to talk about what you understand of that in yourself and especially when you look at yourself compared to the other people that you see around you and what what you see as your kind of core points of difference yeah so i i don't know if i'd agree with sam's assessment of the the 10x nature but i would say one thing that i take pride in is what you alluded to which is like if i say i'm going to do something i will do it now of course there are exceptions there and i've dropped the ball and you know i'm not perfect but generally I tried to hold myself to that standard. Um, and I think a lot of people when they, um, when they take on a job, yeah, they take it seriously and they show up. Um, but they don't almost like have a really core sense of accountability that like I am hired to like really, really like drive value for this business. And if I'm not doing that, I'm failing. Like a lot of people think that if they're not getting like a performance improvement plan, then they're doing, you know, they're not failing at their job. In my opinion, if I'm not like really making a significant difference at a business that in my opinion is failing, like they are paying me to do something of value. And so I think maybe that, that like heightened sense of accountability ends up driving me to, yeah, like really focus on that every single day, like showing up to work and being like, what, what does the business need here? Like, what can I do to actually make my salary worth it to these people and if you if you're going to take that 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 approach that 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 attitude 
to sort of delivering what you say you're going to deliver, you've got to get really good at knowing when to say yes and when to say no, right? Yeah, I think so. But I would also say that um, a lot of people view their jobs as, especially these days, as like a constant renegotiation with their employer. They're like, I should be making more money. And like, they're, they're constantly trying to weigh like the value that they're providing and what they're getting in return. And of course, that is like a dynamic that you need to consider. You want to make sure you're not being underpaid. But I think that working and driving a lot of value at a company is like the coolest thing ever. Like I'm like so driven by like showing up and and like realizing like what value I've delivered. And I think I tweeted about this once. I think um, some people show up to work and and they take the opinion of like, you know, as long as I'm not underperforming, it's cool. Um, and And I think I tweeted something like, you know, if you're if you're just kind of like floating at work, you're harming yourself more than your employer. And so I also take that mentality to heart where if I'm, you know, wasting a year at a job and I'm like doing okay, but not really driving that much impact, like that sucks for all so, parties. So in my it's, it's pride is pride in your job and the reward will follow. Rather yeah, than, exactly. Because rather if than, I drive, yeah, the other if way I drive around. a bunch of impact, then I will ascend in my career. And it's funny because actually focusing on that, has resulted in in kind of like upward movement in my um, career. I've actually never asked to lead a team and I've led a team, I think three or four times now. Um, so every time I have gone back to being an IC or something of the sort, I end up being asked to like climb the ladder again because I think what people end up seeing is that because I have that heightened sense of accountability where it's like, if I'm getting paid to do this, I better do it well. And if I'm spending, this is another thing that I was just speaking to. If I'm spending eight to 12 hours a day on something, why not do it well? Like why not be an animal in what I do? Like it's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of learning in my opinion to just kind of like sit and just pass the time by or just kind of hit your mark. And so, um, that's another mentality that I think has driven me to like perform well. And then, as I said, people end up looking to me and they're like, Oh, I can, I can count on Steph. Like I know that if I give her a project because she takes pride in doing things well, then like, you know, I can trust that this is going to go well. So that's why people end up like, (laughs) you know, asking me to lead teams or asking me to do other roles that I've never asked to do myself. And and when, when do you lose that? When do you lose that drive? I mean, there must have been times when you've um, not felt the energy. Yeah, I think I think I've been very careful about saying no to the opportunities that I know that like I just I have no interest in. Um, and so that is an important aspect of like if I'm going to do something well, the only way to really get to that is if I'm like at least partially excited to do the thing. So I have said no to many, many jobs in my career. I've been offered, especially recently now that like my, you know, personal following has grown. Like I I get job offers where people are like, Hey, would you want to do X at our company? And we'll pay you a ridiculous amount of money. And I end up saying no, because I can see that even though it would be rewarding to get paid that much and maybe like have that title on my like resume, that I would just not be motivated at all in that role. So I've been very careful to only take on things that excite me. And then even within HubSpot, I I led trends for around two years. And then I could see in the last year, my 
interest waning. And so I made sure to communicate that we hired a PM. He's amazing. He now runs trends pretty much exclusively. I still manage him. So I'm lightly involved. And then I've communicated like my interests and now they have me on a new project that I find very exciting. We're actually launching next week. So I, I think I've been acutely aware of the fact that yes, you're interested. So your awareness is high. You don't put up with that feeling you get when your energy is declining you you do something about it you change it you're not afraid to have a conversation with someone and say this isn't working for me yeah i think i think that's right and of course like the way that this is being painted is that like i never like chill or i never like drop the ball but i certainly have those things happen but i do think i am more proactive than the average person to say like hey like my interest is waning and that's not a bad thing that means that like you got just got to put me on something new. Um, and I'll, you know, that drive, I can almost guarantee is going to like skyrocket back up, but I just need to work on something new. So, and so what think, do you do to chill? Come on, tell us. What do you do? What do I do to chill? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as most people do, I have like, I like certain things in terms of working out. I used to play soccer a lot. And these days it's hard football. to find we people call it, to play we call it with. We call it football. Yes. It's not, yeah. called, not called soccer. <laughs> so yes, football I here. used to play football these days. Um, it's hard to find people to play with, but um, we'll also just like work out, go for runs. Um, we live by the beach. I'm not too much of a beach person. I, You know what's funny is a lot of people were like, what are your hobbies? And I'm like, I just spend way too much time on the internet. My hobbies are like, you know, playing online chess or, or something like that. So um, I wish I had a better answer for you. I'm glad you've mentioned chess because I was going to mention it. So I'm going to just, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in a second. Okay. I, you said something earlier. So when you were talking about um, seeing uh, seeing this new world of uh, digital nomad, and uh, and your current employer uh, tried to hold on to you and offered you more money. And I think at the time you said, and of course, I, I didn't accept it. And I, I know that one um, interpretation of that is, of course, you didn't because we know that you went and did something else. But I also sense that there was another interpretation of what you were saying, which is I'd made my mind up and that's what I was going to do. And so I went and did it. And that's really coming through in the way that you're describing your attitude towards getting stuff done and and then when i asked the question earlier and you 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 answered about um you know uh if i'm going to do the job and i'm being paid and you know i can i can create impact and you you answered that question in the context of your job which i totally understand because i kind of asked the question in that way but it's really clear that what we're talking about spills over into every other aspect of your life and so this this uh, will to uh, to do and to be almost a bit bloody minded about getting something done. Where does that come from? I think it's. I'm not sure where my ambition like originally comes from, but I think that drives everything else. Because at the end of the day, it's like the stark realization that I'm going to have somewhere between 28 and maybe 128 years on this earth, and that I do want to build cool things. And I don't know, again, exactly where that ambition comes from. I don't know if it's to have a legacy. I don't know if it's to like live a better life while I'm here and make a bunch of money and therefore be able to, you know, live in luxury. I'm not sure exactly what drives that. And maybe it's a percentage of several things, but um, that ambition and, and the ambition to really make a difference. If I really internalize that 
and then also internalize what I mentioned earlier, which is that I have a limited amount of time, then that's what fuels like this very um, like accountable sense of like, I have this much time to work on this book. And if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So just like put your head down and get it done. And the same thing goes for even like shorter time horizons. When I look at HubSpot and HubSpot should not be surprised for me to say this, like I've spent a year there and I'll spend probably somewhere between one to three years more there. But even then it's like more likely on the like one to two year end. And so if I realize that and I um, really internalize that that is a limited amount of time and I want to look back in 10 years and think like, oh, I, I'm really proud of my time at HubSpot then I better put my head down and get some stuff done, right? Like it, it's, it may sound overly simplistic, but I think again, a lot of people like waste away their years and they look back and that's when they have midlife crises because like they, they're upset with the decisions that they should have made. They look to other people who are getting things done and they're like, wow, I really wish I was like them. And ultimately at the, at the end of the day, the only difference between those people and them are the decisions that they're making every single day, right? Like the decision of one person to go work out versus another person to sit on the couch. Decision for someone to roll out of bed and you know, write their book for two hours versus someone else who decides to, I don't know. Like stay in bed. Right. Or stay in bed. So that, that I think I've, I'm again, not perfect, but I've come closer to understanding and really internalizing over time. And so when I do have that drive to like really get something done, it is, it is to feel that sense of accomplishment because I know I'm going to look back and I have looked back and been like at times like, wow, what did I do? Like that, that's, it's kind of depressing to, to consider that I spent six months doing nothing that I'm proud of. And then I spent other periods where I'm like, damn, like, good for you, right? Like good for you for like keeping yourself accountable. And so I do waver, but that is ultimately what I think drives me is that feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction with how I've spent my time. Okay. This, this is, okay. This is really interesting. Cause this, this uh, we, we, we sort of, we're always thinking in terms of the past, the future and now, and I'm interested in, well, I was going to ask you a question about, how, and I will ask you this question, and then I'll come back to the, the second bit. So the first part is how far ahead do you look? Not that far ahead, but I think I used to look further ahead, I'd say like five or 10 years. Um, but I've learned that so much will change during that time period that it it just becomes irrelevant. So I'd say I, I tend to look around six months ahead. In terms although, of actually although, planning things. Okay, in terms of actually planning things. But you've got vague ideas, like you say, you'll be at HubSpot one or two more years. Um, so you've got a vague idea there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I've got I've got things that I want to accomplish. So I want to start my own business, but that will come anywhere between like one to 10 years from now. Um, and I'm not forcing it to happen on a specific time horizon and I'm not forcing it to be in a specific industry. I'm just, I know vaguely there are certain things I want to accomplish in life. Um, I also know that eventually I want to get like back into more science related things. Right. Um, but again, that could be anywhere from like three years to like 30 years from now. And so I have things that I know that I want to orient around and those are helpful because sometimes, um, I do make decisions with those in mind, right? So I, I have those in the back of my head where if yeah. some job offer comes on my plate and it just completely derails me from the, the like long-term goals that I have, I probably won't go in that direction. But at the same time, I'm not like over-optimizing my life to say like, I need to start a company in one year's time. Um, some people, similar to how we talked about like 
creative constraints will say that having dates is helpful as a forcing function, but I've just done that in the past. And I've seen like just how much life can change, you know, a pandemic hit. I never thought I'd be like Mm. living in the United States for the last two years. And so I try to focus on around the next six months of not certainty, but pretty strong conviction of what I want to focus on. And then these like super long-term goals um, of like what I want to vaguely accomplish and then make sure that I'm just like roughly in moving in that direction without a a definite need to accomplish because any any even any small step you take can give you a very different perspective on you know what's ahead of you so yeah exactly and and also yeah keeping those in mind like the things that i want to do like i i think i want to start a company i think i want to go back into science but at the same time those are not certainties right so so you're staying open-minded about that Yeah, I I very much could see a world where I end up never really, you know, getting back into science, even though I think I want to, or maybe I try it. And then I realize actually, I really liked that marketing stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm open to the idea that the ideas I have about my future are not certainties. They're, they're projections. And I am not, um, I'm not again, over-optimizing today because of some arbitrary tomorrow that I think I want. Okay, so the second part of the question, which uh, is interesting, you, you you already talked about it. You sort of say, you work hard. Um, you're an animal. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't say that about myself. Sorry about that's true. that. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Um, but I sort of get the idea. You know, you, you get stuck in, and uh, but but where you get your pleasure, it seems, is looking back on your achievements. And and I'm interested in in that versus, well, are you enjoying it whilst it, the process? Are you enjoying the nows? Yeah, I am, and and I think that obviously it's not always super enjoyable, but the way that I've been able to balance both of those things, like accomplishing things that I'm proud of, but also enjoying it, is that focus on only pursuing things that I'm really excited about. So, again. A lot of people will tell me, like, I think even on the podcast you listen to, you know, like Sean was like, why don't you just go all in? Why don't you just like pursue a company now? Like it's like, you have the skills, just do it and you'll learn more. And I think there's an element of truth to that, but I also have been able to set up a pretty sweet system where I work on a job that I truly like, I truly enjoy, that gives me freedom. I get paid well. And then everything I do on the side is just stuff I want to pursue. Like I said, mm-hmm. when I had the idea for the book, I wanted to do that. I had something to say. I I felt like the world needed to hear my voice in, in some respect. With other things, I just wanted to tinker. Like I'll spend a weekend and I'll create like a directory of untranslatable words, not because the world necessarily needs it or because I'm going to get paid anything for this, but because I truly am like excited to do this. And I think that has allowed me to both accomplish a lot and um, you know, remain sane and and doing things that I truly want to do. I think where a lot of people go awry is they see something that's really exciting, like starting a company. They've never done it before and they go, you know, headfirst into that, which again, nothing wrong with it. They're going to learn really quickly, but then they're, they're almost like shoved up against a wall. They only have one direction they can go. Um, and, they're, they're almost like stuck on this treadmill of trying to make something work that they, they made a one-time decision around. And I've tried to 
limit that where I'm not just like forced up against the wall of pursuing things that I don't truly want to pursue or trying to meet, you know, my bills for the month. I have a really sweet setup. And, and I think that's how I've managed to also out create a lot of people because I, I've also seen a, a lot of people burn out throughout the last couple of years where they, they like, their following blows up over six months and they're really excited. And then they realize like, what am I even doing? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm not even creating things that I like. And then they just disappear. I've seen mm -hmm. that happen so many times because they haven't created a more sustainable system and they're achieving the, wow, look at my results aspect of things, but they're not actually enjoying any part of that process. When we, uh, you might've seen this stuff, but when, when we put these episodes out, we really, we, we try to be really thoughtful about the title. And I think that the title we might use for this is the animal that protects the downside. And, <laughs> nice. um, and because, but, but I think that's the, that's, that's the bit that we haven't, haven't talked about is that you you're consciously protecting the downside all the time, like really, really consciously more so than I've seen most people think yeah, it's about. Almost, or talk it's about. almost like you're, you're bringing in a floor each time you get out, you bring in a floor. Cause you know, cause you're, you, you, you seem to have this ability to sense when things are starting to slide. Yeah. And, and some people, you know, if they were to, from the outside comment on my approach might say that I'm too protective of the downside or that I am too risk averse. And I think that's actually a fair um, counter, but I would say to your point, what that's what I've done, right? So knowing that I am someone who is more risk averse, like my mom, like we talked about earlier, instead of structuring life to, what a lot of people do, which is just not take any risks. I've tried to decrease the risk. The analogy that I've given before is like, imagine like there are two cliffs and you're trying to jump from one cliff to another. The people who are super risky are just going to just jump. They're just going to go for it. Well, the people who are more afraid are going to be the people who hesitate and end up falling down the cliff. So I am that person. I know I have hesitation. I know I'm risk averse. And so what I've done as, as, silly as it sounds, I've pushed the cliffs together just throughout time, like with enough effort, I've pushed the two cliffs together so that I can just step over and it's yeah. not so scary. And I feel confident in that action. Um, and so I've done that yeah, consistently throughout my life. And I think it does take more risk or sorry, it does take more work than the people who are just willing to take on that risk and just jump over the cliff, but it works for me. And so it depends on like kind of people's risk appetite, but there are tons of other examples of this. I think it's really, um, it's really fun to talk about these outliers who have jumped across the cliff and, and survived. And of course there's all of the people who have fallen, um, who have done the same thing, but in, in an article I write, wrote a while ago, it's called how to be great. I talk about all of these other people who are like me. So the founders of Google, even though they had a working kind of company, they still finished their PhDs because <laughs> they wanted to kind of, reduce the risk where even if Google failed, they, they had completed their degrees. Um, I think the founder of Spanx, she was selling fax machines for quite some time while she was building that company. Because again, she's reducing the risk instead of just going all in and being like, this is either do or die. I'm going to set this up. So it's almost like it can't fail the same mm -hmm. way. You can't really fail if the cliffs are pushed together, it takes more work. It may take more time, but you've drastically reduced the probability that you're going to completely fail. And mm. so that's what I think I've tried to do. I've tried to reduce the downside, as you said, reduce the likelihood of a complete failure, um, which has worked out well for me. And yes, you could argue again that maybe had I focused less on risk protection, I could be, you know, 
10 times more successful today, but I also could be 10 times less successful. I could have also just like completely fallen and you know, failed. But also you've got to find a way that works for you, don't you? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. It feels like there's some innate qualities here. We, we, there was a conversation that we had uh, with a guy called Damien Keys, And I remember the, the episode title was something about burning the boats because this no, was, this it was, was, it was, um, it was fuck plan B. Yeah. Fuck plan B. So he <laughs> talked about this idea of burning the boats and he, and he, his, but, but I think he was in the same way that you are, very conscious of some of his own innate qualities and he needed that in order to go all in in order to be really really motivated to to go and pursue the next thing he had to just get rid of everything else and just put himself in yeah, a position and that's where about understanding yourself isn't it because if you know what works for steph doesn't work for damien yeah exactly and and sam is like this right he said like he, what i do would not work for him and that he does need to like burn a boat in order to move forward and focus fully on that next thing. Um, and again, I think there's, there's an element of truth there where if you do always have a backup plan, are you able to really take the risks that you need to, or invest in something, um, to make it really successful? Some people, the answer is no. For me, I think I actually have been able to balance this and it's not about forever having mm. that backup boat, mm. right? It's about just having enough of a bridge for you to feel comfortable crossing to that next juncture. So it, you know, when I spent 10 months looking for a remote job, it's not like I continued after I had my, you know, new remote job doing all of these random consulting or, or, um, contract work, right. It's not like I continued to have this backup bridge. I now felt comfortable with my new horizon that I just, you know, walked on over. And then similarly for, for these side projects, I've now built up my side projects enough where I could burn the boat burn my, you know, full-time job. The only reason I haven't is because I'm just in a really good place getting paid a lot and doing work that I love doing. Now, if that changes, I am fully confident in kind of my side project ecosystem that I could burn my career boat, right? And, and feel comfortable with that. Um, so the timing is just a function of where I am today, but I have set up that bridge already. Mm. Um, and, and I think I think a lot of people would benefit from setting up those bridges so that they're not also as stressed as they do things. Like over the last couple of years, I think I've endured a lot less stress about like something going under or, you know, something completely going um, up in fire because I have these bridges versus other people who, you know, again, they may eventually be much more successful than I am, but people who go all in on something and burn those boats, I don't know. I, I I've seen a lot of those people I've talked to a lot of those people, they feel super, super stressed. And mm. like you guys said, maybe this is something that depends on the person and they're like almost want for more of a, a stressful environment. But for me, and I think for a lot of other people, they could benefit from just like building some of those bridges instead of feeling the need to follow these other paths of people who are just a lot more risk-taking than them. Just coming back to what I said, I'd put a pin in the chess, the chess point. Um, there was another question. I think they linked together about, um, do you, was that ambition there as a, as a kid? Do you remember, do you remember knowing or other people commenting or noticing the, that, that ambition, that, and that energy? And could you just tell us a bit about chess and how that featured as a kid and whether or not those two things connect in any way? I'm sure they do. I mean, chess was such a big part of my childhood. We, we would go to tournaments very often on the weekends. We, 
you know, we, I ended up competing in, in the world championships. I had a coach, like it was a very big part of my childhood. And so I do think it had pretty significant shaping effects on who I am today. Um, in terms of being competitive, I think I, I think I was competitive since like I was a baby. Like my mom will tell me that I was like quite like a loud child. I, I was very confident. I knew what I wanted from the time I was born um, versus my sister who was actually a lot smarter than me. Like she, she would beat me in chess. She ended up being significantly better than me in that um, endeavor, but she was also way quieter, way more timid um, and way less competitive. And so I, I think chess did help almost be an outlet for me to like pursue that com- competitive nature uh, within myself. But I think, I think chess ended up ultimately providing some other things. So one chess gave me an outlet to like think strategically to like, we're talking about like building these bridges. Like you want to talk about how you lose in chess chess, you lose by being way too risk-taking. This is actually what I used to do when I was, when I would play, this was always my downfall is I would go and attack the other side. And what happens when you attack the other side, just like when you take risk in real life, you either win crazy big and the other person's, um, position just completely falls apart or your position just completely falls apart um, versus really good chess players don't go and like sack their knight whenever they want. They, they go and they, they're very strategic. They set up their bridges and, you know, they eventually win in the end game. So that I think is a great example of like chess taught me almost to like learn different strategies in life, to learn how to combat you know, someone who's really aggressive, someone who's more defensive to, um, to also understand the importance of investing over something over the long term. If, do you guys play chess? Mm-hmm. Either of you? A little. Okay. Bad. So if very badly, <laughs> so you guys probably know how much work it takes to become amazing at chess. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the great thing about chess also is that it's, um, it's not poker, right? There's no luck in chess. So when you sit down at the board, if you're playing white, and you're the better player, you will win. If you're playing black, you will at least tie uh, if you're the better player. And so in poker, obviously that's not true, right? There's so much chance in that. And so I think the amazing part about chess, which I see in myself today a lot is, as we've talked about, like the ability to just like sit down and and get the thing done. And in chess, that means to study it, to go to your coach every week, to read books. And, and you know that if you put enough time into getting better at chess, you will get better at it. Like that is just a fact. And so I think that has also been like a very significant driver in the way that I see life today, where of course life does have more luck and chance in it, but also the knowledge that even if I suck at something today, if I put the time and effort into getting better at it, I will get better at it. And I don't always have to be a beginner uh, in that way. I also think it's a nice like parallel to like when you sit down at a a chessboard, sometimes you're white and sometimes you're black. And I think in in real life, sometimes you sit down and you have disadvantages like Mm. being black Mm. on a chessboard, but that doesn't mean you can't still at least tie or win the game. Like learning to navigate a situation, even though there's not that much luck in chess where you're disadvantaged, and learning to interpret how other people play, to study them, has made me a lot more analytical, a lot more strategic in the way that I think I pursue life today. So, yeah, I think I think it's definitely shaped my worldview today and the way that I tackle life. But I don't know if it's specifically, um, you know, in the in the competitive realm. You you said that you noticed that your sister was um, 
was less competitive. Yes. And and then earlier you said that your parents were pretty chilled. Are you the younger or the older sister? And younger. and also, I'm, I, what I'm really trying to explore is, it's, you clearly were competitive. That there clearly was some amount of ambition and energy and innate drive there. But how much of that might have been a circumstance of the environment versus it being innate? Yeah, I'm not sure. I was I was the younger child. I I never know how much of this to believe because. I think parents sometimes will like see their child today and then like almost like select the memories that align with, with how they are today and say, Oh, like, of course, like, of course you were super competitive or you always have been that way. So it's hard to tell. Um, I do think there was an element of like competition being the younger child and having my sister be so, so smart, like way smarter than I was. People today will often comment, as that being a positive quality of mine, being like, oh, you're so smart. And it's just so funny because I grew up in an environment where like, yes, I thought I was smart, but like comparatively I was not. So I do think there was a, a bit of competition there. How um, did it work when you played chess? Oh, she always won. I mean, she had the, she had always, the age. Always won. Always. Well, that's what I mean. She was much better. So I guess this won't make as much sense to people not in the chess world, but I also quit when I was quite young. So I think I quit when I was around 12, but up until then I made it to the world championships, which is like every country can send a certain number of people. But even when you go to the world championships, you're playing by age and gender. Um, So I would be like under 12 women. Right. Um, And so I would make it there and she would also make it there, but then she also went on to play um, in what they call like the chess Olympics or Olympiad, which is, just four women of any age from Canada, they send. Um, and, and so she, I, I don't know, again, if that makes sense uh, in terms of like a differential being yeah, okay. one of the top four women in, in Canada is very different than being one of the top three under 12 women chess players, right? Like it, it's very different. Um, and so, yes, she, she would always beat me. She had the age difference and also just was a much better player. Um, but yeah, I think I think ultimately what I've now learned since, which is obviously a, a very um, simple lesson, is just like she was incredible at like more so like chess style games. But then I was more, I'd say, like even keeled, like I could play more sports than her or I could like interact with other people in, in ways that she struggled. So I think it was like one of those scenarios where she was just like almost too smart in, in some areas and um, struggled to balance that in other parts of her life. So that probably helped you to kind of find the strength in other places then. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, looking back, I think, you know, ever since I was quite young, one of my like you could say superpowers has been, I've been able to, um, I guess, hang out in basically any crowd. And I think that's come from being able to like, you know, play chess with like super smart people, but then also because I could see, um, because comparing to my sister, like I, I wasn't actually, I didn't actually see myself as that intelligent. I found myself in other circles and being able to hang out there and, and, um, yeah, I, I think that looking back now, like even, um, my partner, he'll be like, oh, you know, what do you think your superpower is? Do you think it's intelligence? Do you think it's like something else? And I think it is the ability to be intelligent, but not always seem intelligent as, as silly as that sounds to almost accommodate anyone who 
like is, is because intelligence boundaries. is just one thing right it's just one yeah. di- it's just one dimension <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it makes a ton of sense um it's been just great Steph and I really feel as though it's been so I think you know this but the reason we do this podcast is because we're just so interested in what makes people tick and why you know we say it in the intro um why some people think and some people do and you've really helped put kind of really point at some specific things here so it's it's been really useful and really helpful so thank you for making the time yeah Um, where what what are you doing what are you working on what kind of stuff um should people go and find you for yeah so as we discussed i i'm always dabbling in in various things the latest things are my podcast it's called the shit you don't learn in school um so people can find that at listenandlearn.co um i also am most active on twitter so my handle is stephsmith.io because my website is stephsmith.io and then if people go to stephsmith.io they'll be able to find all of my previous projects like some of the ones we mentioned yeah and a personal recommendation is start with it you still got the google search for um, how to be great or something is that right yeah 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 exactly so if people search how to be great you'll probably get to my article um and yeah that is a i guess a crowd favorite where <laughs> i i wrote that it's crazy like 2018 i think no maybe 2019 2019 and still to this day like i'll get emails about it of people reading it and even when i wrote it i don't know if they were serious but someone was like i'm gonna get this tattooed on myself please don't please please do not you're gonna regret that but Uh, i hope they did (laughs) yeah well i have no idea i have not heard from the person but um yeah if if here it is That's so funny. But yeah, if people are looking for somewhere to start, that's that's always a, a good place. Awesome. Thanks, Steph. Really nice meeting um, you, Steph. It's um you too. I, I love I love your I, I think the, the big my big takeaway is this idea of sliding in a floor to stop you falling. And I think that's a really nice way for those people that aren't risk takers to de-risk. And uh, it's just such a a nice way of thinking about it. Thanks. And yeah, just as a final note on that, I think as we talked about, it's really, um, it's like sexy to take risks or it's, it's easier to tell stories or people also hear those stories of people who are the like massive risk takers and they feel like that's the only path to success. So it's not that you have to be risk averse like I am, but if you find yourself feeling like, almost scared to do what you feel like everyone else is doing, then I think this is a good option where you don't actually have to take massive risks in life. Yeah. Yeah. You you put the effort into the energy into de-risking a situation by either learning more about a subject or getting to know someone better or, you know, and, and that's, that's yeah. Fantastic. I think that, I think there's a lot of people listening that would um, buy into that, that, that approach. including me (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much Steph that's it folks for show notes head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links a quick summary and you can also explore other conversations if you're enjoying this podcast then please tell your friends give us a good rating and remember to subscribe We're also really keen to hear your feedback. So please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on Twitter. You can tweet us at Life Done Diff. That's double F. 